0: it is good to be in the house of the lord today is uh... pentecost sunday last night our worship team and our tech team got together we had a little barbecue out here uh... so if you volunteer or sometimes we do these things where we just wanna honor you in the way you volunteer but then we came in here last night and we just had a time of worship and prayer we had pentecost saturday last night i don't know if that's a thing but we had, the holy spirit just showed up he's moving through our worship team and our worship ministry and i'm just thankful uh, for what God is doing. Um, we're in the midst of a series on knowing God, and over the last three weeks, we've said this that we can know God exists, that we can know that God can be known, and then last week we talked about knowing God in relationship. We, we talked about how amazing it is that the creator of the universe, right, desires a relationship with you and I, and, and, and that we can have this first hand encounter. Uh, with the God of creation. Today I want to focus on knowing the nature of God. How do we know about God and his nature? I want to tell you it is primarily through his word that we understand who he is and, and what he's like. Scripture gives us a clear view of God's character, but it also gives us an understanding of his nature, right? How God acts, but also really who he is. And I want to start first of all today by posing a question okay maybe it's one that you've heard before and and didn't know how to respond to but it's often used as an attack against God's nature and the question is this if God can do anything I think we have this question here if God can do anything can he make a rock so big that he himself can't lift it how many of you have heard that question before right like deal with that one Christian right how many of you uh, let's answer this how many of you would say yes how many of you would say no? All right, more and more knows. How many of you are afraid to answer? <laughs> Quite a few of you. All right. Uh, you know, usually, again, this question is used to, to kind of trip believers up, right? But here's how I would respond to that question. No. No, God cannot make a rock so big that he himself can't lift it. Any rock that God can make, he can also lift. But the usual response to that is, but I, I thought God could do anything. Understand this morning that God is all-powerful, but that doesn't mean that he can do anything. God cannot do everything. You say, what are you, what are you talking about, Pastor? Understand, there are some things that God cannot do. He can't lie. <laughs> he can't die. <laughs> he can't change, right? The Word of God says in Hebrews thirteen eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6, God said, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you old children of Jacob are not consumed. In other words, if I changed, if I just got upset, right, it, it would go bad for you. By the very fact that he is God, there are a lot of things that he can't do because they would violate his nature. Even things that we as human beings can do. He can't use one of his attributes in a way that would violate any of the other attributes that make him God. That's why even though he can make any size rock, because he is all-powerful, he would be able to lift it. That's, That's why even though God is love, he can't simply ignore sin and let everybody just go to heaven. Rob Bell would tell you love wins, all right? But you have to ask, but what about God's justice? Because he is a perfectly just God. A loving God must demand a punishment for sin. That's why, because he is perfectly just, right? And the good news this morning, we know what is this, is that God's perfect love sent Jesus to die for our sins so that his perfect justice could be satisfied. Now, when we talk about the nature of God, understand this, that to many, it's very hard to comprehend. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, listen to these words. But he, people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Here it's telling us that that a natural person can't understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. Listen, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God, we are spiritually dead. Only a born-again believer can really comprehend these things. I'm assuming this morning that you're born again, and I want to talk this morning about the essence of God today. I want to teach concerning those divine characteristics that make God who he is, and talk about how those aspects of his character all work together in our lives. I also want to show you how we can use our understanding of God's nature as, as a rationale, as a spiritual tool to respond to the problems and the challenges in our lives. So I want to talk about God's essence today, His His nature and who He is. Romans 1, verses 19 through 20 tell us some interesting things about God's attributes. We read this a few weeks ago, right? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. If you're following along on the note sheet, there's your answers. His eternal power. And divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Here's what we're told in the verses that I just read, that the knowledge of God isn't something that we can discover if we look really, really hard for it, right? but rather it's plain within each of us and in nature. It is clearly seen. God's attributes, his power and his nature can be perceived from the things that are around us. What God has made, God made it evident. Are you thankful for that this morning? He's made it clearly seen. Why? Because he wants us to know him. He desires for us to know him. Today I want to look And what the Bible tells us, again, about the essence of God, about his divine nature or attributes. And uh, I'm also going to show you, again, how you can use these tools, this knowledge, really, as a problem-solving tool in your life. Now, the Bible tells us that God is one in essence, and he is three in personality. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? There's only one God, but he has three distinct persons. This is known as the Trinity, all right? Now, you know this, the word trinity is never used in the Bible, but the truth of the trinity is throughout the pages of scripture. If we go back to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, this is the most important verse that Jews memorized in the Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, there are a few words in Hebrew that the Holy Spirit could have used here. There's the word Yahid, which speaks to a numeric solitary oneness. But instead, the Holy Spirit chose to use the Hebrew word Echad, which is used most often as a unified one or coming together. For example, when God said in Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one, Echad, the two shall become one unified flesh. It's the same word for one that's used in Deuteronomy 6.4. Isn't that amazing? At the same time, the word Yahid, the, the Hebrew word for solitary oneness, meaning one and only one, is never used in reference to God. Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, it's a plural Hebrew word, it created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us, right? Who is he talking to? All right? Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. We see the truth of the Trinity fleshed out right away in the book of Genesis. 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul writes these words, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one God. And so they all share these divine attributes that we're going to discuss today. However, they reveal themselves to mankind. They interact with us in different ways. For instance, consider God's divine plan. God the Father is the author of the plan. The Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to implement that plan, right, by dying on the cross for our sins, and the Holy Spirit reveals the good news of that plan to the world. The Father didn't die on the cross, neither did the Holy Spirit. We don't place our faith in God the Father or the Holy Spirit for salvation, right? We place our faith in Jesus Christ. So while there is only one God, there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. All three persons, get this, they share these divine attributes or essences, but each person interacts and reveals himself in a different way to us. And so the essences of God tell us who God is and and what he's like. They tell us what his divine character is like. And so let's look at each of these ten essences to see what the Bible has to say about God. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. When I say God is sovereign, I mean that he is the supreme authority in all of creation. Like there is nobody higher than him. He created the universe, the angels, and man, in that order, right? He has ultimate control over things, including the laws of the universe and and human history. He has a spiritual plan for redeeming mankind, the ultimate authority over those things to guarantee that it comes to pass. Understand, when, when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't go to the cross with his, with his fingers crossing, man, I really hope this works, right? Like, I really hope they love me back. We sing a song, Reckless Love, right? And, and I get what Cody Carnes is trying to say, but can I just say this? God's love is not reckless. It's very precise. For, from the moment mankind sinned, God said to the serpent, okay, here's how this is going to go down, right? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Now, how can he make that declaration? Because he is sovereign, right? I understand through scripture that all those who are chosen by God will be saved. John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. What's he saying? He is sovereign over all And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. God is sovereign over creation. But I want you to understand he's also sovereign over our salvation. We often like to say this. I chose to follow Jesus. Maybe you sang that song. I decided to follow Jesus. Right? I made a decision to follow Jesus. But did you really? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 declares, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a dead man that can do anything, right? A dead man cannot save himself. So God has chosen us. John 15, 16, Jesus declares, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so whatever you ask, the Father." in my name he will give it to you we did not choose him he chose us we love him only because he first loved us right because he loved us and because he's sovereign over all things including salvation romans eight twenty nine says for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What does this mean? It means that no one who is foreknown fails to be predestined. And no one who is predestined fails to be effectually called into the kingdom. And no one who is called fails to be justified. And no one who is justified will fail to be glorified. God is sovereign. Amen? God is sovereign over all things, including salvation secondly i would say this god is righteous god is righteous god is he is perfect goodness for us as mankind our righteousness is relative right we determine our righteousness by comparing ourselves to others right i'm not as bad as that guy i look pretty good right we would tend to say, Pastor, I'm, I'm a good person. I, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't rob a bank this week. I, I don't try to hurt others. And, and we think we're good because we go to church and we give a little bit in the offering and we give to the poor, right? Some unbelievers think they can go to heaven by keeping just the Ten Commandments. But Jesus himself tells us in the Bible that if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery, right? He also says if you hate someone, you're guilty of murder, Now, considering God's standard of righteousness, who hasn't broken those commandments, all right? And if you answer that you haven't, you just violated the third commandment by lying, okay? Since God is omniscient, you can lie to others, you can try to lie to yourself, but he knows what you have and you haven't done. But what does the Bible say about man's goodness? Scripture tells us in the book of Isaiah that God views our righteousness as filthy rags, right? Right? Righteousness, meaning you on your best day, when you, when you think you've got it all together, you still fall short of righteousness apart from the righteousness of Christ. Filthy rags. In Hebrew, that has the meaning of used menstrual rags, right? Wow, that's you on your best day. <laughs> In Romans, the Bible says that there are none righteous, no, not one. God's righteousness is perfect and absolute. Understand, it stands on its own. Uh, apart from comparisons to any other beings, it is by God's perfect righteousness that one day mankind will be judged. And so without the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is freely given to us at salvation, all who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ will be sent uh, to eternity in hell. And it's a real place. It's a real place. Without Christ, we would all be condemned for our sin. Understand today, unbelievers are condemned on the basis of their works. They're filthy rags because even their human good is evil. No one has divine good apart from being a member of the body of Christ. And so when we read through the Ten Commandments, here's what they demonstrate. They demonstrate God's perfect standard of righteousness and that no man has ever lived without violating them except for one. His name is Jesus. God's perfect righteousness, understand this, It also governs the use of his perfect justice, guaranteeing that God is good in how he rewards the saved and he punishes the unsaved. And understand, as believers in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God has been imputed to us. It's been credited. It's been freely given to us. Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. In other words, here's what he was saying. It's a righteousness that's apart from me. It's not mine inherently, it belongs to Christ, but God declares us to be righteous, not because of anything we've done, but because we've placed our faith in the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We now have that perfect righteousness as a free gift given to us by grace through faith. Next, I would say this, God is just, God is just, when we say that God is just, we mean that he is perfectly righteous in his treatment of his creatures. God shows no partiality. He, he commands against the mistreatment of others, and he perfectly executes vengeance upon the oppressors. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God's justice could not be overlooked. Their, their crime doesn't seem so great to us, right? Like what do they do? They, they ate the fruit, right? How big a deal is that? But consider it from heaven's point of view for a moment. Think about it. The Lord Almighty, the sovereign ruler of everything, the one who's worthy of all adoration and worship, has been defied by the dust that he formed into people. He had made these creatures for his own purpose and his own pleasure, and he showered love and bounty upon them. He showed them their options, and he told them, here's the consequences if you do this. But they responded to God by saying, well, you know what? We're going to do as we please. And at that moment, the creature created, tre- created treason uh, against the creator. Justice demanded action. You see, for God to overlook or excuse the treason would not be just. Because God is just, he cannot make a rule and establish a penalty and then not follow through when the rule is broken. Because God is also love, he had a way to satisfy justice without j- destroying us completely. Again, justice required the death penalty for treason, so something or someone had to die. A substitute was brought in to satisfy the demands of justice. It was, for so long, was a beautiful, flawless animal that was killed, right? Thousands of years later, justice was satisfied once for all as God sent his son into the world to be our substitute. And, And now God does not compromise. He doesn't compromise his character and his justice when he forgives our sins. The two angels on the top of the Ark of the Covenant represent God's perfect righteousness and justice. And those angels faced each other and they looked down upon the mercy seat. And so when the high priest sprinkled the blood of an innocent animal there, God's justice and righteousness saw the sacrifice and they were satisfied. God's justice and righteousness combined are what the Bible calls the holiness of God. And God administers his perfect justice towards nations, as well as on behalf of the poor and the unjustly treated. Listen, our world today is crying out for justice, aren't they? But, but so many are doing it in our world without acknowledging the God of justice. And whenever mankind takes justice into their own hands, it always leads to violence and the chaos. You don't believe me? Just read the story of Cain and Abel, right? Cain felt like, I'm treated unjustly by God, right? When God accepted Abel's offering, but not his, he thought that's unjust, and he took matters into his own hands. And what does he do? He kills his brother. And God says, your, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. What have you done, Cain? And so when we join in the cry for justice, it should be only be with those who acknowledge the God of justice. Listen, the reason the civil rights movement in the 1960s was so successful is because it started in the church. It started in the church. And there is a movement today that started in the world that the church is being asked to join, but it is causing chaos and violence in our nation because it does not acknowledge a God who is ultimately just. You hear me today? And I'm not saying... That we should not rise up when we see injustice. We need to think, though, about who we're actually linking ourselves with in our fight for justice. God's blessing is not on much of what has happened today. Not because God is unjust, but because mankind is seeking to bring about justice on his own terms without acknowledging a just God. It's, It's built on man's wisdom. And not an acknowledgment of our need for God's intervention. There's no acknowledgment of a God who is just. Can I just say what God has done in this place through the years has not been a work of man, but it's been a work of the Spirit of God. Amen. And so we need to pray, church. We need to pray for our nation today. We need to pray that the church would rise up by unashamedly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. We we need to preach the the gospel of salvation, not a social gospel, because we know it's it's the only thing that actually deals with the sin issue and actually changes hearts. Some ask, well, if God is just, why is there so much injustice in the world? Like, why doesn't he just, like, smite the sinner? You ever think about that? Like, just strike him down. Remember, my wife and I had this opportunity in December of 2019 to travel with Love 146, a ministry that we stand behind as a church, and we had the opportunity to go over to Thailand, and we were able to see firsthand the sex trafficking that's happening there. i tell you, it breaks your heart. And then we went from there. We went over to the Philippines to see their, their safe house. And we get to the safe house, and it was so amazing to see these kids that had been rescued out of some, some dis- horrible places. And to see them running and playing and to see the joy in their face. But at the same time, it, it breaks my heart to see there were children there that couldn't even walk yet. And you say, what in the world? Part of me said, God, would you just send a lightning bolt from heaven, right? And just, just deal with this. But why doesn't he do that? I want to tell you it's because of his love for us that he's long-suffering. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Are you thankful for the patience of God? We're thankful for the patience of God over our lives, not always over everybody else, right? He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Understand today, God is not slow. He's not slack. His timing is perfect. He's giving an opportunity right now for repentance before judgment comes and justice is seen. This brings us to another part of God's essence. is this. God is love. God is love. I would say today God is, is perfect love. As as a good shepherd, he cares for all of his sheep, right? God treats all men in grace, not on the basis of what we've earned or what we've deserved. God loves believers personally because his son, Jesus Christ, has, has paid for our sins. The Holy Spirit indwells us, right? We are, again, credited with righteousness when we trust Christ for salvation. Next, I would say this. God is eternal. What does that mean? He has no beginning and he has no end. Think about that, right? It blows your mind. He, he transcends all things. All three members of the Godhead are eternal. God always existed and always will. He has no progression of days. That's why he just says, I am that I am. God is always the same. Because he's eternal, he knew us and he loved us even before we were born, right? He's always known the sins we would commit. He's known the failures we would have infinitely back in eternity past. Long before he created Adam and Eve, he he knew they would sin. God already had a plan of salvation prepared for us as well as future rewards in eternity for those who grow in his grace. He knew you and he loved you before he created the universe. Doesn't that blow your mind, right? God is eternal. And he gives to us everlasting life when we trust in the saving work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Next, I would say God is omniscient. Omniscient. What does that mean? It means God knows all things, past, present, and future. Because God is everywhere, he's omnipresent. He also knows all things in all places at all times. Think about that, right? He knows all the thoughts and the desires of our hearts He knows our words even before we say them. He knows the future. He knows prophesied events such as the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as well as the second coming of Christ. His perfect omniscience is the basis for his perfect wisdom, meaning that God knows the right thing to do in the right way at the right time. You ever feel like, I know the right thing to do, but I don't know how to do it, right? What, what's the right time to do it, right? And, and, and But we understand this. God is the only wise God. And so if we want true wisdom, not just the right thing to do, but how to do it and when to do it, we need to seek it from God because he knows all things. Next, God is omnipotent. Understand, God is all-powerful. He can do anything that does not violate the other essences of his nature. He created all things. He maintains them by his power, and he never grows tired. The nations of the earth are dust in comparison to him. God on, God's only limits are the other essences that he imposes upon himself. Next, I would say God is omnipresent. Again, God is everywhere at all times. He, he's as much in your daily life as he is when you're here on a Sunday morning, right? You, you can't hide from God as Adam and Eve tried to do you. Can't escape him as Jonah and Paul attempted to do. He's he's with you in the church service. He's with you in the automobile. He's with you in that motel room when you're out of town on business. Right? He can see the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart. The great thing about his omnipresence, though, is this: he's always there when you need him, even if you've been ignoring him for a while. You you want to pray? He's there to listen. You read his word, he's, he's there to teach you. If you're in a sinful place today, he's here to take you back. He never loses track of you. He's watching over you at all times. There is no place so, so far from God your father that you can't make a quick return home simply by confessing your sin and turning back to him. Then God is immutable. What does that mean? It means that he never changes, right? And so whatever we know about him today, think about it, it's certain, right? It's not this way today, and tomorrow it's going to be something different. If he were to change, he would not be perfect, right? What he did for other believers in his word, he will still do for us as well. Because God cannot change, here are examples of other things that he cannot do. The the God in the Old and New Testament is the same God we have today. He didn't change from a God of vengeance, and all of a sudden he became a God of love, okay? Okay. He can't regret having saved you, nor does he take away your salvation, right? His other essences cannot change. They will remain perfect and cannot be lost and cannot be lessened. Next, I would say this. God is truth. God is truth. The word veracity. I don't know if you've heard that word. Veracity, right? Understand, God does not conform to truth. He is perfect truth. We we know this. He can't lie. His promises to us in His Word cannot be broken. It, it is the existence of God and the essence of, of veracity that ultimately makes absolute truth possible, not subjective. Understand today, truth is not subjective. It is absolute, and it's found in who God is. It's found in in His Word. For example, when First John one nine says that God is faithful. To forgive our sins when we what? When we confess them to him. And so what, what do we know? We know he does that every single time. He's faithful to do it again and again in our lives. He can't break this promise any more than he can break other promises. I'm thankful for that today. And, and we know this. We know we will one day be with Jesus in a, in a mansion he's prepared for us. I don't know if we're getting our own mansions. I, I think it's one mansion, many rooms, so... You better learn to get along here because we're going to be living together soon, all right? But, but the Apostle John testifies to us about God's veracity in John three thirty three. He says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Did you know that today? God is true. There's so much I could share this morning about God's nature, but I don't have the time to get into all of it. But I pray you would get into the word of God because it will teach you about his nature. It'll teach you about his nature. In your outline today, there's a ton of scripture verses that I put down along each of these points. I hope that you'll go back and you'll read this week and you'll allow the word of God to speak to you. But let me demonstrate how we can understand and take an understanding of the nature of God and apply it to our circumstances today. When when a crisis occurs in our lives, here's what we can do. We can remind ourselves of what we know of God's nature. When you're walking through a difficult season, when there's a problem before you that, man, this is just too big for me to face. Understand, God is sovereign, and so his will concerning your problem is supreme, and that cannot be overruled. God is, is righteousness, and so whatever he does about your problem will be divinely good. He is perfect justice, and so his decisions will be fair. He is perfect love, and so he cares about you at all times in any way that he acts. He is eternal. And so he knew about this problem millions of years ago (laughs) before you faced it. He's omniscient. He knows all the facts, and he knows exactly what needs to occur. He's omnipotent, so he has all the power he needs to make things happen. He is omnipresent, and so wherever you are, he will be with you he is immutable and so he never changes you can rely today upon his faithfulness just like people like abraham and isaac and, and jacob did he is veracity he is perfect truth and so he can't lie to you about his promises you can rely upon them understand knowing the nature of god is a problem solving device because it puts every problem every situation in perspective whenever you have a stress or a problem in your life you can Use God's nature and apply it to your circumstances. You can rest in faith upon your knowledge that each of God's perfect essences work together to provide divine solutions for you in grace. We're going to celebrate this morning with with five individuals that are getting baptized in just a moment. Amen. (laughs) Praise God. Five individuals who are declaring the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their life. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you today. Your word. We thank you today for who you are. We thank you today that that you do not change. And so, Lord, we come to you today, recognizing that you're sovereign over all of our situations, that you are all powerful, all knowing, all present. And we thank you today, Lord God, whatever is before us, that we can just lay it at your feet and trust you today. But I pray by your Holy Spirit this week as we gather in community groups. Lord, that you would make the truth of your word, that you would make it real to us, and that we would live into that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.